Hi, welcome to valuationpodcast.com, a podcast and video series about all things related to business and valuation. My name is Melissa Gregg, and I'm a business valuation expert in St. Louis, Missouri, focused on mediation and litigation. During this episode, we will discuss mergers and acquisitions and creating value before the transaction with Stephen White. He's an ESOP valuation expert and transaction advisor in Montclair, New Jersey. Welcome, Stephen. How are you? I'm well. How are you today, Melissa? Good. So much going on in the M&A world, and we're going to dive deep and fast, right? Yeah, we are. We are, because there is a lot going on. It's interesting because one of the terms that is typically used right now, we live in unusual times, and that's putting it very broadly. I think if you look at everyone's lives, it's, it's, it's changed quite a bit over the last 12 months, and it's amazing that you want to close your eyes and wake up and think that this was all just a, a bad dream and pick up in the first quarter of, of 2020 where we are right now and kind of keep the ball moving. But unfortunately, that's not really the case. And so way I look at our space, what we focus on, there are a number of different businesses that have not done extremely well and are still struggling. And we speak to owners all the time. And that's one of the things that we take pride in is that we actually sit there and we and we listen to our clients and understand some of their needs and wants and some of their desires. And exiting out of their business was a thought that they had or possibly acquiring other companies was a thought back in 2019. And then all of that changed. And so people had to learn how to pivot and learn how to do different things. And that was something that we, for lack of a better phrase, took advantage of, of listening to our clients implementing a particular strategy and what we do when we value a company for an M&A transaction to help business owners and, and owners buy on the buy side or the sell side have a better understanding of what type of investment they're actually going into and what they can do with it. So we are living in some trying times right now, but I'm excited. I'm excited because of the things that are really going on and where we're actually going. And if you're sitting on the right side of this, it's going to be a beautiful ride. <laughs> it's truly going to be a beautiful ride. Well, and at the end of 2019, everybody had a five-year plan, a 10-year mm-hmm. plan. I'll retire when I have this amount. I'll do this. You know, Maybe I'll consider it if a buyer comes by. And right. then everything changed. And I think what happened also is that a lot of people just in general have been staying at home and not doing much. But in the meantime, transactions are still happening. And so COVID kind of wreaked havoc in a number of these industries and professions, but the M&A space was not immune, but it was also thriving Mm -hmm. and deals were still getting done. They just may not have been done traditionally how we've done it. But where do you see us kind of currently in this space of mergers and acquisitions? Yeah. So that's an interesting point because, and I'm going to take it back just a moment because something you just said was interesting is that if we go back to the fourth quarter of 2019, the MA space was really thriving. Mm-hmm. Um, and we tend to, we study certain areas as far as different trends. And that's how our business is, is driven in, in that, those particular types of events. We study private equity. In 2019, the fourth quarter 2019, there was an enormous amount of powder that was being raised. And that created a lot of deal flow. Mm-hmm. 
And if you were raising capital at that point, you probably closed your funds towards the end of the fourth quarter of 2019. And then some lingered into the first quarter of 2020. If you were still raising capital after a year ago today, perhaps, you probably did not close that fund. But it's the ones that did close in the fourth quarter and the first quarter. Those are the ones that were able to sit back, take a look at the landscape, take a look at how the economy was going to rebound, if in fact it was going to rebound, and strategically start positioning themselves in the right way. So the, the, the amount of dollars that were placed in the market has surpassed over $2 billion. And, and And this is encompassing your, your mega deals, your large deals, middle market deals, and, and so on. So that's everyone all combined together. If you look at just the middle market, because that's the area that we really focus our attention on, the middle market, all the way down from 3 million up to roughly, say, 75 million of, of, uh, of deal flow. I would say that it broke down into different categories. The first quarter, there were roughly 61 deals, and that was just middle market, which is a lot. That was up probably about 12, 15% over first quarter and, and, and the fourth, uh, first quarter of 2019. Then the, then the second quarter hits. Now, what's so interesting about the first quarter is that there was already speculation that there was a pandemic going on in the first right. quarter, but yet deals were still going because there was a lot of capital out there to acquire businesses. But then once everything shut down, it shut down the M&A market as well. And that's where people started sitting back and reevaluating certain things that were going on, but didn't mean that they stopped because in the second quarter, alone there was roughly about 20 deals a, a, a definitely a drop from 61 deals down to 20 deals but still there was activity it wasn't until pretty much the middle of the third quarter i guess that's when there was a a, a thrust of activity that went into the marketplace and it went from 20 to 55 deals and that was right around the middle of the third quarter and of course in the fourth quarter it jumped all the way up to 84 deals. Now that just blew out all numbers from historical numbers that from 2019 and 2018, as far as the number of deals in the middle market space. That just lets you know that it set up a, a perfect segue into 2021 because people have been sitting on the sideline. They're looking for different opportunities. And to your point, if you go back to 2019, business owners were looking for ways to exit out of the business or looking for opportunities. And that's what I love about M&A. It's two different transactions. You can either merge with a company or you can just acquire a company. Acquiring a company, somebody's thinking of exiting out of the business. And, and so that's where the fourth leg stool of what we do kind of all ties together. We do ESOPs, which is your exit strategy. And so we help advise clients from that side of it. We deal with family offices in Gibson State. We deal with distressed companies, which can be merged with another company. And of course, that ties right into your corporate valuations. So there has been a significant rise as far as deal flow. But the key for, I guess, when you think about for the middle market is where, what industries. Mm -hmm. So the trends that we focus on, you'll look at the top five sectors. And that's from activity as well as size of the actual deal flow. The number one has been in the technology space. 
and it and it's kind of intuitive. You think about it. Look what we've been doing. Look what we're doing right now. Everything is virtual. Probably two years ago, you and I would have been in a studio sitting now having this conversation over a cup of coffee. But now it's all virtual. Well, a lot of activities going virtual. In fact, a number of people are utilizing technology now to do the entire merger activity virtually. And I think Ernest and Young is one of the pioneers leading in that particular way. But you have technology, finance has been leading the way, retail trade, healthcare technology, and um, transportation. So those are the top five industries as far as activity goes. So there's a number of deal flow that's going in that area. But if you look at from a value standpoint, you have technology service, consumer devices, um, healthcare technology, you have utilities. Those are leading the way from a, a, a um, value side. And the difference between the two, and I get this question often, is how many deals are actually, when you see m and you, you, you get alerted in the idea that these are huge mega deals that are out there. There aren't as many mega deals as there are the middle market deals. There's roughly about 73% of the deals that you see, they're in that space. They're in that middle market space from 200 million down. Just the size of them, it only takes one or two mega deals and, and the numbers get skewed in that particular way. So the size of the middle market is very small in that particular instance, but there's a lot of activity going out there as far as when is it a great time to exit out of a business and when is a good time to actually converge our businesses together? There's a ton of money sitting there now, but the key is, is that business owners as well as the people that are selling, I mean, the buyers and the sellers need to understand, you want this transaction to go through smoothly, you want it to be successful on both sides, you have to understand what that value is of what you're actually buying. And that's where we step in and, and, and really guide our clients and our, our the people that we work with at this point. Well, and I think we all had to take a break during the pandemic to figure out, you know, it's hard to remember back there um, how confusing it was and how mm -hmm. distressing it was and that we were all trying to figure out, okay, where is the world going to go, not only from a financial standpoint, but right. a mental health and healthcare and all of this, but what continued to happen is there were many businesses that were successful and thrived. There were some that maybe faltered a little bit. And then you had a bunch of people with money that were mm -hmm. looking for either a deal, maybe a faltered company, right? And say, okay, well, we could mm -hmm. snatch them up for a little bit cheaper. Or what are the companies that have been successful during the pandemic? And should we start investing in that area. And you kind of talked about a bunch of different industries, but was there a particular industry that you've come across that seems to be like the most active right now in the M&A space? Yeah, it's really been in the technology space, uh, technology and healthcare from our perspective. And so, like I said, we, we study a lot of trends and we read a lot of different research reports because that helps us when we're doing our valuation because you want to look at the economic and the industry analysis in order to really come up with a true determination of value of that particular business but as far as the technology and the healthcare it is interesting and just to give an example of of a company that we were doing evaluation for which is in the healthcare sector. 
they actually own something that is doing extremely well, it's very profitable. But the unique thing about it is, and as I go through this, I have to be very careful how I explain this, because we obtained this client because of the mere fact that they were a distressed healthcare company. Mm. They had a product that was doing extremely well, but other things that they had in the company were not doing well, which was draining the overall company. So in that process of doing that valuation, what we found is a another partner for them. Mm-hmm. So the partner was able to come in and acquire that, that distressed company and obtain that product that they have. And I think everyone pretty much understands that in the healthcare industry, R&D is one thing that keeps them keeps the company uh, growing. And if they do not have a, a robust pipeline, what do you do? You go out and acquire <laughs> the product. And that's essentially what took place in this particular situation. And that has been happening more and more in the healthcare space. They're looking for the, the larger and mid-sized companies are looking for the smaller uh, companies that have great product line, but do not have the mass distribution that the larger or the mid-sized company have and merging those companies together. And that's more along the lines of what's called a more of a synergy type of uh, uh, merger where the two companies come together and look for opportunities to grow and enhance from that standpoint and eliminate some of the overlaps there. From a technology standpoint, those have been more of I created something or we're moving along in somewhere and they're looking for more of an expansion of their overall company. We're doing more of the valuation at that point just to see where they fit in in the grand in the grand scheme of things. So healthcare technology, those have been the two that have been, have been approached the most. The least amount, interestingly enough, has been on the retail side. Um, and I can't quite put my finger on why that is. I would think intuitively, you would think that's the area that you will see a lot of activity on, but it hasn't. And, and I brought up the, the bankruptcy side of it because a lot of them are just selling off yeah. <laughs> parts of their, their overall companies in order to just continue to survive. So they're selling them off to pay off creditors. They pay out subordinate debts. But we do occasionally get involved in the M&A where someone is going to buy off, rebrand it, and then incorporate it inside of their overall business plan. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that one of the things that you kind of touched on had to do with synergies. And mm-hmm. I think that this this becomes an interesting discussion from a valuation piece. And I think that realistically, I think part of what you're also trying to provide us with today is like, what do the buyers look at? Like, right, what is a buyer looking at when they're looking at a company and what are they finding value in? But a lot of these, I mean, do you think the reason that a lot of this activity is happening is because of synergies or are, is there some other thing at play? Yeah, I do. I do. And you know what? And, let and me what does that even mean? You. Like, yeah, yeah, help people understand that. Let me back up just for a moment because I think it's important for everyone to understand there's two different types of transactions. There's a standalone transaction and then there's an investment value. And that's more your synergistic type of value. From a standalone, real briefly, essentially what you're looking for is a buyer to come in from and is that buyer is called the 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 financer. So you're computing for that particular transaction a fair market value. 
Mm-hmm. And I think majority of people understand what fair market value is. It's more of a trendy year term in the valuation space. So as a financier, they're coming in, they're bringing their capital, they're buying into that, buying that particular company, and they may even bring in a management team, a competent management team to help come in and run the overall business. So ultimately, that fair market value, which is actually computed, is their benchmark as far as where they start negotiating, whether or not for the buyer side or the seller side. And it works perfectly well for them there. The other side of the equation, which is the investment value, that investment value is where they look for different benefits above the current value of that particular business. They look for synergies, things that are going to enhance what they currently have right now and the benefits that they particularly may have. So if you looked at it from a mathematical equation, you have your fair market value minus your investment value. That gives you what is called your acquisition premium. So that's above whatever that fair market value is. And the interesting thing about synergies is that it one size doesn't fit all. Uh, what could be a synergy for my company may not be the same synergy for another company in the same industry, because there's different things in other companies that may be very attractive to them. Mm-hmm. I think there's there's two different types of synergies that people will normally consider. There's something that's called a combinational and then it is a transactional. Combinational is when you combine the two companies together and you eliminate some of the overlap. You see from an operational standpoint, their assets, you you see different things that you can maneuver around in order to enhance the value of the overall company and you combine it. So it's kind of into it. The transactional one is pretty much the more exciting one because you see a company, you say, you know what? I want to buy that company. You forget all about the combinational sides of how that is going to be attractive and how it can help grow the overall business. The transactional side is, I just want that particular company. It could be from a competitor standpoint. You don't see it that often in, in, in middle market. That's more of a larger company type activity, but it happens quite a bit. And they forget what, and it can mess up some of the synergistic things that you see, but it, it, it builds growth in the overall business. So you synergies going to be different for everyone at different times. And you hear synergies quite a bit, but it, I, I joke with my team all the time about synergy is basically one plus one equals five. Right. You want to bring two companies together and know that it's going to create much huge, uh, larger value in the, mm-hmm. in the, in the in transaction. And sometimes with fair market value, I try to explain to like a seller that you're looking at what the minimum somebody would purchase is. Like if I came off the street and I didn't know anything about your business, I might pay on cash flow. I might pay on history of cash flow. I might not pay on what you think the future is going to hold. But if mm-hmm. I'm coming from it from a synergy, I see something and that's investment value or something that could be higher than fair market value. But I'm looking at like, I want that product. Like that product right. fits a niche that I need and I could sell it to my million clients right now. Right. right. So I'm seeing something that I can do with what you have that maybe only I can do and or I could make it worth more. So then you now have kind of these bookends where it's like, where is the value or the price between there? And Mm -hmm. I think that that gets a little confusing when people are like, well, but I thought the value of a company just is like a number. Like there's just like this number out there. And it's like, well, that's, you know, not necessarily true. Um, There's a lot more that goes into that. 
It does. It does. And, you know, oftentimes we look at valuing companies in the M&A space to your point about fair market value is, is that <clears throat> we look at the public markets, right? When you buy a particular stock, you're not buying the stock based on, and even though you talk about what the performance has been in the stock and what the stock has done over the past history, you're not really buying it for that. You're buying it because of the anticipated appreciation that you're actually going to receive, the dividends and the stock appreciation. That's why you're what you're buying. So you're buying the current value of the stock, not what the stock has done in the past. And the same thing applies here. So your fair market value is your baseline to what you were referring to. You as a buyer and you as a seller are ex expressing where this company could potentially go whether or not it be from a standalone or it could be from a synergistic standpoint, it could even go higher from a synergistic standpoint. That fair market value is the investment that you plan on investing in the company, not the investment value. The investment value is where this company will eventually go that you as an owner now will be able to benefit from. And that's where some deals just fall apart because, and, and this is probably a really good example. So. Let's just say you had a fair market value of say 30 million. Oh, not 30 million. Let's say 15 million. 15 million. Fair market value of 15 million. But the investment value, which is the maximum amount value that you could probably get out of this company, is going to be 30 million. So 15 million fair market value, 30 million maximum investment value. That 15 represents something better than if somebody came in with an, a, a fair market value at 20. Mm -hmm. because now instead of 15 room, now you only have 10. And so from a buyer standpoint, you never want to buy a company at the highest level, at the, with the highest investment value, because there's nothing coming back in return for me. I've already right. reached that cap. So they will walk away from a deal if it's not valued accurately. Mm -hmm. Even though business owners tend to think they know what their business is worth, a buyer is very strategic and they want to make certain that they're getting something appreciated out of that company. And that's something that we call a good company and an investment company. A good company is a company that you buy, but doesn't perform as well as you think it will be and ends up being a bad investment. Good investment is when you buy something under, under undervalued and it ends up growing. So you make that decision. Which one do you want? Do you want a good company or want a good investment? Mm -hmm. People that we work with, the people that you are involved in in mergers and acquisitions, they want to make a good investment. They don't want to just buy a company. And that's where fair market value becomes so critical and, and having them understand the purpose of having that fair market value. That's your baseline, like you said. That gives you that negotiating area so that you can, the buyer knows where they can go as far as the potential investment value. Well, and, and that's where I think like, you know, transaction advisors, you know, mm -hmm. business brokers, investment bankers come in and they have to give you a pretty adequate idea of where the market is going to price your company. Because a lot of times sellers want to say, well, if I sold for around 10 million, I think I would be okay for retirement. And I think that that would be reasonable. And then it's like, well, what's the basis of that number? And it's like, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it would just, 
it would, it would make me feel comfortable, you know? So I think it's really part of our job in coming in and helping sellers and buyers is to give them kind of a reality check and say, you know, what does, what is somebody going to look at and not like about this company? What could you fix? Or what are they going to love about the company? Because a buyer will have less expenses in some capacity. And a lot of sellers are like, okay, well, then we're going to price it without all those expenses. But that's what the buyer is going, you know, like, so I think there's, you know, some complex issues in there, but it's also bringing some reality to the process. Now, Mm -hmm. um, as, as a valuation expert, what do you see or what do you notice as one of the biggest concerns as it pertains to synergies? Like, do you see anything um, in this space? Yeah, it, synergies, the biggest challenge is that we run across and I will use the group that we work with a great deal. Uh, very smart group of investors, but oftentimes they overlook some of the benefits that they have in looking at just the product. Mm. And so where synergies fall apart is, is that they don't break down and truly understand the benefits that that company will be able to bring in. Synergies is about understanding where the combination of those two companies will work together in order to appreciate and value, not just having another item on your shelf. And so size and i think where where some make that mistake is understanding that size of your company equates over to a higher value in other words we've all seen the advertising of companies when they talk about we've been around for 100 plus years mm-hmm. and we started off here and now 100 years later we're here so the advertising behind that makes you feel as though they grew that company organically, right? And there's right. nothing wrong with that. I wish our company, we could grow organically to that point. But the reality of it is, is that that was a number of different mergers along the way to get to that point. So they brought in a lot of different companies. And what we found is that when they overlook the true benefits of that synergy and they just want to acquire an asset, to add on to what they have, those are the deals that you eventually see a couple of years down the road, they're selling it back off again because it wasn't a good fit. So you have to really go beyond the front door, so to speak, that's what I share. We gotta go beyond the front door and see what's going on in these other rooms there. Because ultimately what you're trying to do is identify what their current value is based on the anticipated future returns, their net cash flow. Bottom line, you want to understand what that net cash flow is. Revenue does not always equate to value. So going through and checking through every single aspect of that individual company will help you identify whether or not that's a good fit. And I find that happens more often than not, that even though it is a synergy, it's a combination synergy, you're combining the two companies together. Problem is, is that there's no extra benefit that they're receiving behind it. And that's what we try to help avoid clients when they're making that decision. Gotcha. Now, if if you're continuing to talk about value, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we've talked about this kind of through this process and, and there is a difference between value and price, right? But yes. well, maybe that's a little nuanced for this discussion, but from your expertise in valuing companies, um, how does a company build value in order to get a higher price? Yeah. So this is a tricky one because everyone has their idea what value means. Like I just stated some people believe that revenue is equated to value and that's not the case really more often than not it's not i think what i've seen come across in valuing companies especially when we're dealing with the m a space is that companies don't understand how value is actually created or better yet how they can actually destroy a company's value as they continue to go through their daily operations so what i mean by that is is that value must be measured and I've learned some years ago um, at an old firm that I worked at is that if it can be measured, it's important. And the value creation inside of a company can be measured. And we identify four different metrics that we work with. Uh, One is investment. Return is another. Rate of return on a company and then ending up with value. And each one of those metrics hold a a very critical part of how a company actually creates a value so as you can tell there's it's not just the the revenue line that we're looking at we're looking a little bit more in depth into the company because that value creation is what gives you that appreciation of investment value so that helps you determine what that price of the company that you should be buying if you go through this exercise of identify measuring the investment, the return, the rate of return, and the value of the overall company, and realize that there is no inherited value, anticipated uh, return of that particular company. Why would I pay X for this? Even though it looks shiny and it's very attractive, you should not necessarily invest in it. And I'll give you an example. We did a a this exercise on a company. We work with a, a an investment group that acquires different companies to add on to their overall portfolio. And there was a offer price on, on, a, on a particular investment. And just so you everyone knows, there is a difference between a valuation analyst and a, an investment broker, uh, a, a business broker. A business broker, they, they have a portfolio of clients, they have a network of different uh, people that can buy or sell a particular business and they market that particular business. We provide, a value of that particular an opinion of value, a render or opinion of value of that particular business. So there's a, a distinct difference between the two. But what we do when we come in, we break down and understand what that inherited value would be of that particular company. So for this client that we were actually doing this for, it was actually on a manufacturing company. They were buying the distributor of some of the parts that they utilize in in their transactions and they wanted something that was to their to their knowledge was trading sometimes or anywhere like 10 times their multiple the reality of it was it wasn't it was an industry number that business did not reflect the actual industry they just did not know how to operate the business efficiently so they couldn't capture this the company the the parent company knew how to do this and so therefore, they're not gonna pay for something that you just don't know how to operate. You don't know how to work it. 
they had to come in and do a lot of upgrades to what they were currently doing. Those upgrades is like a discount <laughs> to the overall price. Those are the kind of things that you identify when you are going in, not just looking at the financials as a, as a plain sheet of paper. You have to dig in deeper and find out where that true value is in the overall company. And how we go about doing this is, is and I mentioned this before, we talked about the public company. Uh, there's something that's called a public company value creation model that we compare uh, their analysis of how they value their their companies from a public company standpoint, and we incorporate it into valuing privately held companies, specifically those in the middle market, the lower middle markets, I should say. We look at the cash flow returns, the current economic and the industry conditions, the internal capabilities, all those things determine what's called the, the risk profile of the company. Same things that they do in a public company. We just apply those when we value the, uh, the privately held company. And those particular things are the centerpiece of what helps start finding out what the current value is of a company, which is their investment. You want to identify what, how this company generates profits. You need to see where that excess return of the over any of the excess return over the, the cost of capital. That's your present value of your overall company that you want to focus on. That's the investment. You want to know that you're buying something that you know you get a return over whatever their cost of capital was. Another is your return. Your return is your free cash flow. That is key. If you can identify what your free cash flow is, after you paid all your expenses, your capital expenses, your working capital, and all the other additional expenses, that number that you see, which is a free cash flow, and interestingly enough, if you look at some accounting statements, business owners look, their financial statements don't even include what their free cash flow is. So how can you judge what the value of a business is? You need additional free cash flow in order to do other things with the company, even after you paid off your capital expenditures. That is a nugget that I think is overlooked by a number of different transactions that take place. And of course, the rate of return. Your rate of return is, is, is an, a significant part of this because you're looking at the risk. How much risk are you inheriting in buying this particular company? Intuitively, you have a high risk. Think about public companies. You buy a company, if it has a high risk, you're expecting what? A higher return. Same thing applies in the private sector. If you are identifying what the risk level is of that particular company and you know it's high, you're expecting a higher rate of return. Not to get too technical with this, but because of the risk, inherited risk, it discounts back into the value. So the value of that that you're acquiring, the cost of it is, is, is lower because you're paying at a higher risk. And in reverse of that, if it's a low risk, you're asking for a higher, uh, lower return, but the value of it is increased. So those are the four things that you need to look at when you are trying to find that current value of appreciation of return over time in a particular company, as opposed to looking at it just from an industry multiple, because every company is going to be different. And unless you do that deep dive into a company, that's why some deals don't make it. Right. Because they don't go the extra mile of understanding a little more about the company. And there are always potential landmines that if if even the business owner hasn't done kind of a good analysis of their company as they go to market, you know, those are just going to be landmines that are going to explode during the deal. And they're going to be like, how did this, what happened? How did the, what went wrong here? <laughs> 
Well, maybe <laughs> nothing went wrong, but you know, there are definitely important factors to disclose. And sometimes things that business owners don't think are important or they don't disclose are the things that really start to, um, you know, blow up a deal. The other is having multiple interested buyers also yes. helps because every buyer is going to look at this different, right? In some no, capacity. You're right. Um, and that and that is helpful when you're the seller because it goes back to that synergy aspect of it, right? Mm -hmm. Synergy means something different to everyone. Mm -hmm. I see something different in this company than you may see in this particular company, even though you, we're both vying for this company, but there's something different about that company that you like, that you know that could be a benefit to your company. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, the buyer needs to know, what am I getting from this? Am I getting a good company or am I getting an investment company? Right. The smart ones want the investment company. And there have been tons of deals that have gone on that you'll see they another merger takes place. Another transaction went through. They, they're merging these two companies together. And in reality, with three, four years down the road, you realize and you see the stories. This was a bad deal. <laughs> This should have never happened, right? Mm -hmm. Because of the mere fact that they weren't looking at it from a, the synergistic standpoint, they were looking at it from a transactional standpoint. Mm -hmm. They just wanted to have more of that. They wanted more mm -hmm. and they brought that in. From a lower perspective, you look at a company and the synergy is, I want that particular product or that, or that client base that they actually have. That would help my business where you could be looking at it from more of an operational standpoint, the management team they have, they're great. Well, that's part of the company. And that's the synergy that you could use in your business because not only does that revenue line continue for that piece that you're adding in, it could help your business mm -hmm. and enhance your, your overall revenue line. So mm -hmm. there's multiple different things that you can look at as far as a seller looking back at your company. And that's why if you're a seller, you wanna continue to create the value in your overall business so therefore, you can have multiple people that are interested in your company if they can see where that value can come from in multiple different areas mm -hmm. instead of just being a one trick pony. And it's hard as a business owner. I think, you know, we see these longstanding businesses that mm -hmm. have um, built something amazing, right? And they're like, I would never sell. I'm going to do this until I die. Yeah. And this is the most amazing. And the unfortunate part is that a lot of times that's the best time to sell. Like when you still love it, it's still amazing. Everything's going great. You have like multiple years of good returns. But I think that there's one interesting piece in this mm -hmm. that people don't always talk about in valuation and it's debt. So we'll have some companies that are old family companies and they're like, we right. have no debt. We have all this money in the bank. And then you have other so sort of young tech startup, you know, like companies right. that are really thriving and they have so much debt. Talk right. to us a little bit about what debt affects either the return on investment or even just in general, the value. Because this will kind of maybe blow people's yeah. mind a little bit. Yeah. Debt is a unique one. Yeah. Uh, because debt from just the term itself has different connotations. Mm -hmm. People hate debt. Like mm -hmm. you said, I don't want any debt. I just want cash in the company. And when you value a company, they have no debt. Then you can become a little leery about them. Why don't you have any debt? You don't know how to manage the overall company. Is the company not capitalized correctly? And the flip side of that, sometimes you have 
too much debt because <laughs> you don't know how to manage the debt. So debt in itself can be viewed as a financial leverage. Um, so a company that has debt, those funds are used to increase the level of return, so to speak, of, of, of the equity. So you have, just like your home, you buy a home, and this is probably the best example. You buy a home, you have equity, and you have the debt. Your mortgage is your, is your debt side of it. As you pay down that debt, your hopefully your equity is appreciating it as well. So you're you create a a, a level of a return with having some debt on your book, and it also positions you where you can do other things as well. You see a lot of debt. You see debt in ESOP companies as well. You can use that ESOP debt to acquire other companies when you don't have even though cash is is, is has that terminology as being cash is king but you're not maximizing the potential of your overall business by by being debt free um so and also you have to look at the volatility side uh, it'll show what your risk and rewards are by that financial leverage that you actually have so the stronger companies in the long term appears to be more stable when companies resulting in the earnings of the cash flow when they have some debt on their overall book. Um, so it, it can be a benefit to companies and it does help their return on their investment because of the mere fact that it's so low, the, the debt interest is so low, it does help appreciate the equity side of your business. And that's a great question to ask because most business owners look at debt as a bad thing. Mm -hmm. You just have to walk them through and explain. And every debt is going to be different for every company. Like you mm -hmm. talked about technology companies, the debt could be a little different than on a consumer uh, sales company. So I would clearly walk through and understanding how that debt lever, that financial leverage could be utilized and work in their favor to help them with their rate of re uh, a return on their overall investment. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that one concept in business valuation is that, you know, the utilization of debt at such low interest, because debt costs less than equity, right? Mm -hmm. it, it actually helps create value, but the debt could also be used so you can grow faster. You mm -hmm. can excel, you can take on more things, right? It also shows that maybe you have good credit and things like that. But does growth in the company, growth in the revenue, like I'm growing so fast, does that automatically just move right over to value creation? No, uh, not at all. Uh, because of the mere fact of that, just because you're growing doesn't mean that your company becomes more valuable. And again, that's the the optics, uh, the perception that some businesses feel as though that just because they're acquiring parts and making their, they have more employees, they have more of this and they're growing doesn't make their company more value. A company increases its revenues or even on their overall assets is not automatically identified as being that growth only increases value when it reduces its risk. Okay. And it creates more of a positive cash flow. So if your risk is not reduced and your cash flow is not going up, I don't care how big you are, the value of your company is not going up. Those are the two components that create value risk and your cash flow. You want to reduce your risk. So, you have certain situations where you could walk through it's kind of like your strategic planning meetings that you have with 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 uh owners every company does it for the most part i would say 
they sit down at the beginning of the year, they put together their plan and they look at their, what, their mission statement that they have. And that's one of the ways that they guide them throughout the course of the year. When you go through this and you start doing their competitive analysis with the company to see, does it make sense for us to become larger? They immediately start looking at ways that they can increase their revenue. Mm -hmm. By increasing their revenue, sometimes they incur more expenses over their, uh, uh, of their business. And with them increasing their expenses and, and changing their working capital and changes in their, in their capital expenditures, it may reduce their, their cash flow. But they don't look at it in that way. They're looking at, okay, this is an opportunity for us to increase our, our, our revenue line. But you're reducing your, your cash flow. That's the component of, 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 uh, of creating value. The other side of it is if you're focusing on just the assets and you just want to bring in these particular companies or these assets, you're creating more of a risk. So as your risk level goes up, you're lowering down your value of your company. So the growth side of it, strategically done, yes, it can be a beautiful thing. But oftentimes, they look at size matters as far as, as value, and it doesn't always translate that way, mm -hmm. which is the reason why if you go back to the late 80s when we were going through the heyday of LBOs, a number of those companies have dismantled because they were just acquiring companies, acquiring companies, acquiring companies because they thought the, the, the supermarket store was the way that you should go. We have everything. We could do everything in this one particular company. And as you can see, a lot of those companies have dismantled because it, those pieces just did not fit together. There was no value associated with it. They were large, but there was no value in the companies. And in right. public companies, that became a reflective in their stock price as it started to do in them. Well, and I think that, that when you're looking at companies, revenue is obviously important. Cash flow is. is more important. And there are, you know, like for the most part, you know, companies are going to be transacted on cash flow and then potential cash flow that a buyer could have from, you know, your operations. But the other piece is that there are, there are types of industries and companies, you know, subscriber-based companies, mm -hmm. um, software companies, things like that, that they may, they may buy a company based on your subscribers, on your revenue, on your, you know, client, your book of business. But, what you also have to realize is that is not the same for every industry. So if you move over into manufacturing and distribution, you may not get a multiple of revenue. You're going to be mm -hmm. looking at a multiple of cash flow or some sort of, you know, figure based on that. Um, but I think that one of the things that we've tried to identify in this conversation is that there are a lot of ways to look at valuation and there are traditional valuation approaches that may be used in estate planning or some sort of IRS issue, but which do you prefer to use in mergers and acquisitions and yeah. why? Because it's different, you know, like, and yeah. I don't think people talk about it enough. You kind of have traditional valuation and then I kind of talk about, then you have reality. <laughs> And yeah. so some of it is like bridging valuation theory and reality, but how do you prefer to look at it in the M&A space? Yeah. So I'm going to go back to the very beginning of this conversation of how we look at valuation in the M&A space. We're there to focus on establishing value. 
That being said, we do lean more to the, the, the income approach because we're using expected future returns. And I, and I pause on that because there's the market approach is truly a, 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 an approach that is, is widely used because you're comparing other companies to the company that you have in order to derive a, a particular multiple of that particular company. Um, but we find that we are, it depends. That's always a great term in valuation space. It depends <laughs> on the company and the industry that you're working on. And it also depends on the, it really com comes down to the, the transaction that you're, you're um, valuing. Mm -hmm. It would depend on which is more appropriate for you. We find ourselves leading with the income approach utilizing the other approaches as well but that's kind of the the guiding force that we focus on in the income approach and if we break it down even looking at the method out methods we utilize the dcf and, and i know which is why I've, I've hesitated on this because i know as soon as i say dcf people will go wrong with that and then they have different arguments as far as how can you use the dcf and look for it out three to five years no one knows last year proved that to us right but if you stop and think about it, everything that everything in valuation is based off of a forecast, mm -hmm. right? None of us have a crystal ball, but we're all basing it off of forecast. So whether you use a market multiple or or a DCF, they're all used to estimate a value or some form of, of so to speak, of, of a forecast. So that's the reason why we lean more over to the forecasting of working with the management team, if if that's that's possible, it doesn't always happen. <laughs> to work with them in combination of of obtaining the forecast of of that particular uh, entity that you're working on, and come up with a a uh, a forecast. But I guess if you look at it from from a multiple standpoint, you can come up with a higher multiple for EBITDA earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And that just basically tells you that you're forecasting essentially a higher value of, of, that, of that company or the growth of the profitability of that company. That's a forecast. Mm -hmm. So why not just specifically work with that individual company, that individual management team, and put together a forecast? not just a multiple from an industry standpoint, but just working for that particular multiple. We still look at, and I don't want it to be misconstrued that we do not look at multiples from the, or utilize the market, which we do. But I think as far as creating value, we've been more successful working from the income approach. Um, I just think that working in that particular area, and it also ties into the M&A due diligence there's a significant amount of work that you need to do. And I think if you are really zone in on the, the company itself, and, um, and, and what I mean by that, I'm talking about the buyer side as well as the seller side, you're going to learn more about that company and the industry and the economics that go along with this to help you with that particular forecast. So it becomes more realistic and, and sustainable for that mm -hmm. particular company. And I think that's where they obtain the more of a, a core value or a true value of that particular company. Yeah. And I think even if you look at there's a reasonable range for the market approach and the 
the yeah. income approach, they're going to overlap at some point, right? And the more you they can should. get them to kind of <laughs> overlap or to see why they're not overlapping, right. like what are we missing? The other thing is doing a discounted cash flow method. You know, there's a lot of work that goes into kind of that first valuation or that first creation of that model for that particular company, understanding the nuances of what drive the value, what's fixed costs, what's, you know, variable costs, all of that. But once you have it built, it really is a process of, of just re-looking at it each year, right? And saying, okay, mm -hmm. how did we do? Did, did, we, did we miss the mark? Did we do better than what we projected? Um, and then where do we see the next year? Are we changing the projections? I also right. think it gets multiple owners when you have maybe multiple owners to start looking at the same metrics. And so mm -hmm. they're not like, well, I think we're successful if we if we go to Asia. Well, I think we're successful right. if we hit, you know, a hundred million dollars in revenue. Well, but but all of those, you know, like which ones really move the needle to get more value on the market? And that's where kind of having a third party come in and say, no, right. I know that you think it would be really great to go wherever, but is that going to be something that people are going to pay top dollar for? And that's a different kind of perspective um, of it. I think I think in general, even having anybody look at what the value is, either from a valuation, a, an accounting perspective, a, a business broker perspective, just having anybody look at your con company, they're going to come back and say, did you think about this? What, what happened here? And you're going to be like, whoa, I didn't even think about that. Because you get into this like bubble, right, of your own company, and you're not always seeing all the, the bigger picture. So no, I think right. it is, yeah, it's helpful to look yeah. at it from a couple different ways. No, you're right. And, and I'm going to add on to that. And it's interesting because not only do I run this company, but I also teach at a graduate program at University of North Carolina, their graduate program in on their online valuation courses, one of the students or a couple of students have often asked, do we, the things that we teach, do we apply them in real life situations? And the answer, it depends. It depends on where you are in the valuation world, where you will apply those, those rules and, and, and antidotes. But one of the things that is interesting, I told them is that you'll always go back sometimes, it could be a couple of years, a few years from something that was taught to you and you can implement it into your valuation. And one of those things is, is understanding, and I, and I know I'm going back to the synergy standpoint because something that you said about having multiple owners in there, and some of them are thinking where there's true value in their overall company. If you go back and, and I use this, it's a DuPont analysis, where you're taking a look at the overall company, you're looking at the profit margin and, and the asset turnover, you want to look at the value drivers from your income statement as well as from your your balance sheet and essentially what you're trying to identify by utilizing this analysis are different areas that you can make some adjustments in order to do what those two things increase your net cash flow and reduce your risk yes you may be very profitable overseas but are you increasing your net cash flow and are you reducing your your risk so all of that goes back into the forecasting so when you're forecasting, you're sitting down with management. If you take the time to peel back the onion, so to speak, and of seeing where there's 
underlining value where that creation that value creation is done that's where how those multiples are, are become more valuable because you truly understand now that company mm -hmm. so if you recall i said there's creating value is one of those tricky things is that some people don't know how to manage value and then some people synergize and bring companies together and destroy value not knowing exactly how your business creates value can be very detrimental but if you can learn and someone can show you how you can create value that's the investment that you really want to make oh i love that that is such a good way to kind of tie up this episode <laughs> because we didn't get to fairness opinions we didn't get to uh, like all of these other topics yeah. so we're gonna have to have you come back again Stephen. Yeah, that's how it works Fairness <laughs> is one of those unique ones. Uh, there's so many different things, but just to give clarity, since you threw it out there, let me just be very clear. A valuation um, report is different than a fairness opinion. Mm. A valuation report is based off of a hypothetical buyer and a hypothetical seller. So you're offering a rendering of uh, offering a render of opinion. A fairness opinion, the opinion is already there. <laughs> so yeah. you're just making sure that it's fair for the shareholders. So I'm going to make sure that it's clear, but that's a whole segment. But remind everybody, you know, we've we've posted your email address and your phone number. Um, but just remind everybody kind of some of the things that you could provide services um, if they reached out to you and maybe sure. had some of the needs. I'd be happy to. So we are a a a valuation advisory firm that we specialize in just four particular areas. I like to refer to them as our, our stool because each leg is extremely important, but they eventually tie into one another. We talked about ESOPs a little bit earlier today because that's a part of the exit and mergers as well. So we specialize in and providing ESOP valuations. We work with family offices and structuring family limited partnerships within the gift and estate valuations. We work with distressed companies as well under the bankruptcy code. And then finally, we work in uh, corporate valuations, which is what the topic was today of mergers and acquisitions, providing valuations for pre-money and post-money valuations. And those are typically more for your startup companies that are looking for, not necessarily startup, but companies that are interested in and in, in raising capital. They want to know what the value of their company is pre and, and post of raising those capitals. So those are the four areas that we specialize in and we focus our attention on. There's a number of different areas outside of that particular space that people can work with. But if you have a need in any one of those four areas, we would be more than happy to sit down with you, have a consultation and discuss how we could be of help to you and assist you in your valuation needs. And those are kind of the big areas that most um, companies kind of are dealing with when they're thinking about transition. Is it going to go yeah. to people in their family? Is it going to go to employees? Um, are they ha are they struggling and they may need to, you know, file a bankruptcy or something like that? Um, so I think you cover a gamut of all these kind of areas that a business owner would consider mm -hmm. when transitioning or exiting. And so that is really helpful if they don't really know the path that they want to go on, right? That's it's helpful true. to work with somebody like you that has all the options, right? And it's me and my team. So we're all together as one. So I definitely want to give them some credit because they work extremely hard. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. We appreciate all your knowledge and uh, I'm sure we'll see you again soon.
Thank you very much. Thank you for this time. And hopefully someone was able to take some quote unquote value out of this segment today. Awesome. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care.